0: And pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, I hope you're all well. I took a break from Sydney last week after being locked up in my work from home studio apartment and made my way to Darwin in the top end and then down to Melbourne where I saw Barney and Tara. Anyway, this week's case is one that will be coming with a trigger warning as it does involve a young child. References are a coroner's report, court records... A piece by Andrea Petri from theage.com.au, abc.net.au and aussiecriminals.com.au. Okay, so tonight's case is where a couple, they get together, they have kids, but then they split up and get divorced. Now, there are problems with the settlement in the divorce and with access to the children. This isn't all that uncommon at all. It happens all the time. Sometimes, like in this case things get out of control in the extreme. So, tonight we have a couple, Peter Peter Barnes, P E T A, who met Arthur Freeman, who met in Australia and they got married. Arthur born in 1972 73, I'm not sure. I don't have the exact date. He was a graduate of computer science at Deakin University in the 1990s before he landed an IT job at the RMIT's aeronautics campus at Fisherman's Bend. Peter was in HR and made her way up the corporate ladder. Now, they married on December the 31st, 1999. Now, Freeman, being an IT guy... Getting married on the day before the world was supposed to end because of the Y2K bug is quite ironic. Anyway, Freeman and Peter then went to live in the UK where they had three kids. Benjamin, born in the year 2000, Darcy, born 2004, and Jackson, born 2006. Now, Freeman had quite a well-paying job in IT while in London And he was only weeks away from permanent residency when the family of five returned to Australia in June of 2006, moving to a place in Hawthorne. Now, Peter then commenced work and Freeman, well, he remained at home looking after the kids before getting a job sometime in December of 2006. Now, Freeman had found it hard to find work on return to Australia and this had caused him to have mood swings putting the marriage under enormous strain. Now, it's during this period that Peter mentioned to several doctors that she was concerned that Freeman, he might harm the children. She also disclosed that Freeman was an angry and irritable husband who shoved and pushed her and was overly irritable with the children. Now, these concerns were noted, but no further action was taken. In fact, When Freeman took the children to get immunised, even though the kids were misbehaving in the waiting room, he didn't seem stressed or angry towards them at all. So from what it looks like, because Peter didn't present to the doctor with, say, black eyes, nothing was done. Getting pushed around and verbally abused doesn't really leave bruises. In March 2007, the marriage failed. Now, it's unclear if the couple attended marriage counselling. My references actually said either way. Regardless, the couple divorced in June of 2008. Now, I don't have to tell you that divorce can be a very stressful thing, especially when there are kids involved. I mean, if you have no real assets, you have no kids, then the most you might fight about is who gets the Nirvana CDs or the cat. Kids and money can really make getting divorced messy and can easily escalate into violence. Now, Peter again told her GP that she feared Freeman would hurt the kids to get back at her. The initial custody arrangements for the children were disputed and this would be sorted out in court. Peter and Freeman would basically have equal custody of the children, Freeman did go back to the UK between July and November 2008 in an unsuccessful attempt to gain citizenship and during this time the children stayed with Peter in Australia. Now these custody arrangements stayed in place up until the 28th of January 2009. Now, during the proceedings for the new custody arrangements, the children stayed at Aries Inlet with Freeman's parents. There was a psychological assessment of the family undertaken to determine what was best for the kids. Now, Freeman was late to these meetings that they'd have and he would interrupt other family members being interviewed and this caused the kids to get quite stressed. The psychological assessment that came out of these meetings stated Freeman had chronic personality and interpersonal problems that are caused by a tendency to irrationality contradiction and denial of responsibility despite this a psychologist noted that Freeman appeared to have a warm and loving relationship with all his children. Now, these court proceedings concluded with consent orders which reduced Freeman's share of custody from equal custody to three days' custody each second weekend and custody on the afternoon and early evening of Thursday of each other week. Now, he seemed happy with the judgment when he left the court. Now, this was the afternoon of the 28th of January 2009. And little Darcy had her first day of school coming up the very next day, the 29th. Although Freeman left the court looking like he was happy with the judgment, which also include Peter paying him 15000 in property matters, underneath he was seething. He made several phone calls to friends later in the evening telling them how he was unhappy with the judgment and that the psychological assessment had been negative for him and positive for Peter. He did, however, not express any overt anger or make threats to harm Peter or the kids on the calls to his friends and he even made plans to catch up with some of them the following night. Now, the night of the 28th, Freeman and the kids stayed at his parents' place at Aries Inlet. Freeman's dad, Peter, said that his son seemed very distressed at the court proceedings, particularly the role the psychologist had in determining the parenting arrangements, and he'd felt that he was set up. Now, Freeman said spent an unsettled night and was still distressed the following morning. The next morning, little Darcy needed to attend her first day of school at St Joseph's Primary School in Hawthorne. Now, this is around a two-hour drive from Aries Inlet. His father, Peter, offered to accompany his son and the kids on the journey to Hawthorne, or he even suggested to put it off until the following day as Arthur Freeman just seemed so stressed. Now, this offer of help was knocked back. Freeman and the kids left for Hawthorne at around 7.30am. At some time after 7.35am, a a witness observed Freeman's car driving erratically and at a fast pace on the Anglesea Road and he was tailgating other cars. Now on the way to Melbourne at 8.09am, Freeman had a long telephone conversation with his friend Elizabeth Lamb who was in England at the time. Now, during that conversation, he was very upset and crying. He described the court proceedings to her as having lost his children. He also told her that there's a lot of angry women at the family court and that he would continue the fight through the court system. The conversation ended when Elizabeth Lamb's phone battery died, but she was concerned that Freeman might be suicidal. Now, Freeman, at this stage, was running late and he was getting flustered. Now, not long after that phone call finished, Freeman received two relatively brief phone calls from Peter Barnes. She was waiting at the school with her mother. In the first, at 8.54am, he told her to say goodbye to her children. And in the second, he told her that she would never see her children again. Now, Peter quickly called her solicitor and then the police. At 9.15am, Freeman, drenched in sweat, stopped the car in the inbound emergency lane of the Westgate Bridge at Spotswood and turned the hazard lights on in the car. He asked Darcy to climb from the back seat and into the front. Freeman then reached into the car from the driver's side and pulled Darcy from the car and led her over the parapet of the bridge. He lifted her up and threw her over. She fell more than 50 metres into the water below. Now Freeman was emotionless. He returned to the car and drove away in an ordinary way. Now Benjamin, his son, asked if he could come into the front seat and Freeman stopped the car to enable him to do so. Benjamin was all too aware of what had happened to his younger sister and asked his father to return to help. Now, witnesses told of how they saw the car stopped in the lane and thought that maybe one of the kids was sick and that they were horrified when they saw, who was obviously the father, throw his child over the edge of this bridge. Freeman drove to the Commonwealth Law Court buildings on the corner of William and La Trobe Streets. He parked the car next to the curb in La Trobe Street about halfway down the block towards King Street, just a normal park in the car. He then went into the court building. Now, this building was where the custody case had been heard over the previous two days. When he entered the building, he was carrying Jack and leading Benjamin by the hand. He tried to hand Jack to one of the security officials saying, take my son. The security official declined to take Jack from him. Now, shortly after his arrival, Freeman appears to be greatly distressed and crying and was generally non-responsive both to the kids and to the court officials. Now, Miss Christine Bendel, a court counsellor, took some effort to comfort and console him. When she eventually got his attention, she said, it'll be all right, to which Freeman replied, no, and he sobbed loudly. He later said to one of the police officers, take me away. Now, Darcy was found at the base of the bridge by attending paramedics and police following several triple O calls from witnesses. Now, they attempted to revive her and she was transported by air to the Royal Children's Hospital. Sadly, little Darcy wouldn't survive and she was pronounced dead at 1.35pm that day. She was just two weeks short of her fifth birthday. So Freeman would be charged with murder and would plead not guilty in a trial that would last 19 days. Freeman's main defense was that he was mentally impaired at the time and that he doesn't recall the events that led to the death of his daughter. So he admitted it was him and that he did it, but he didn't know what he was doing at the time. Now, during the trial, Freeman presented with long, unkempt hair, and he looked crazy. Now, this was in stark contrast to those that knew him previously, with that neat sort of haircut thing. I mean, he was wearing a suit, but he just looked crazy. Now, this was probably part because he realized what he'd done, and partly because he wanted to present himself as being just a little bit man. Anyway, Professor Graham Burroughs, who was called by the defence, gave evidence that, in his opinion, Freeman had been suffering from severe depression and, as a result, had fallen into a state of dissociation so that his acts were not conscious, voluntary and deliberate or intentional. But, to the contrary... Dr. Skinner and Dr. Bell, who were called by the Crown, gave evidence that, in their opinions, Freeman was suffering from only mild to moderate depression, and if there were any dissociation, it was not such as have to remove his capacity to act consciously, voluntary, and deliberately or intentionally. Thank God we had some people with sense." Now, the fact of the matter is, or my opinion anyway, Freeman pulled his car into the breakdown lane, he put on his hazard lights, and then he asked his daughter to get into the front seat so he could pick her up and then do what he did. Now, if he was in some sort of daze, he might have just crazily dragged the car into the the lane or just stopped at where he was and not worried too much at all about hazard lights. So putting the hazard lights showed that he knew what he was doing. So it was good that the defense psychologist's testimony was not given much weight. The trial was conducted on the basis that although Freeman did not remember what he'd done, he accepted that he was the person responsible for Darcy's death. In the result, the jury rejected the defense of mental impairment and Freeman was convicted. Now, before I get to his sentence, I want to read out part of Peter Barnes' victim impact statement. Now, she said, Where to start is a challenge as this statement brings to the surface all the raw emotions I live with daily. Since the loss of Darcy, I grieve on a daily basis and realistically do not see that how that can ever change. The saying time heals all wounds is not true for myself and I don't ever expect it to be. Not a day goes by where I do not constantly think of Darcy where I don't miss her and wish with all my heart that she was with me. I can feel her little hand holding mine when I walk down the street or drive in the car. I lie in bed at night and hold her in my arms. I talk to her and think of her daily, wishing she was participating in the activities that were happening at the time. No words could ever truly describe the loss of a child to a parent The emptiness that sits within you, the piece of you that no longer exists, the fact that you no longer go on in life as a complete person. Seeing little girls who have similar traits or looks to Darcy heightens my already active emotions. Holding myself back from giving the child a hug is always a struggle of self-control. Not a day goes by where I don't flash back to the emotions I felt when I was told by my ex-husband that I would never see my children again. The panic and fear these words set off inside me resonates within me even today. I feel them now in incidents of my daily life that would not have impacted me prior to Darcy's passing. I notice that I have a heightened anxiety in everyday situations and have to manage myself carefully to control this. The events of that day of Darcy's passing are all horrific in their nature. To articulate the impact of this day and the ensuing future it has brought cannot truly be expressed in a victim impact statement. No one, and erase the thoughts and associated feelings I have of sitting in the hospital and having to tell the hospital staff that they were allowed to turn the life support machine off. Of holding Darcy in my arms as she passed away, and knowing that this decision would take her from me again, and knowing that there was no other option available to me. Wow, I think we need a couple of minutes break after that. Now, Freeman was found guilty and sentenced to life with a non-parole period of 32 years. That means that the earliest date he'll qualify to be released will be the 29th of January 2041, and he'll be 67 years old. Now, not only were the immediate family and friends affected by what happened, there's also the first responders and the eyewitnesses. Christine Goff, an ambulance officer, was among the first on the scene and she said, I asked Darcy to fight to live but she could not. I begged her verbally not to give up but her body had. Also called to the job was police officer Colleen Spiteri who said, I remember feeling so overwhelmed by what I was seeing and I turned back towards the footbridge and almost fell to the ground. Spatiri went on to talk about what she'd said to Peter at the hospital. I spoke to the girl's mother. I told her that her daughter was strong and had fought hard. I told her that in the short time I was with her, I loved her so that she had love around her. What would come out of this is how domestic violence is reported by doctors, teachers and lawyers and the like even though the coroner's report found that even though Peter discussed her concerns in regards to safety at home with her GPs and family lawyer, they didn't depart from the prevailing standards of their respective professions in regards to mandatory reporting. Now, he did say that dealing with patients and clients who are experiencing or are at risk of family violence or child abuse is complex. He said the practitioners were eager to improve their knowledge and skills in order to be better equipped to assist their patients and clients. So basically, the response to family violence needed to be strengthened, especially by GPs who are often at the front line in identification, responding to and following up on family violence cases. Now, even though no one could have predicted the extent that Freeman would go that day, Peter Barnes had given out many warning signs that weren't really acted upon. If anything can come out of this, hopefully better education and more mandatory reporting of incidents can help reduce this type of incident. Basically, I reckon Freeman was a vindictive Dickhead! What sort of father or human being, for that matter, would throw a four-year-old girl over a bridge to her death? He was in a rage and wanted to get back at his ex-wife with something that would haunt her forever. Not only her, but many others as well. A four-year-old kid, for fuck's sake, in front of her two brothers as well. There's no hell hot enough for scum like Freeman, and there's many others that would want him executed, but I reckon that would be too humane for him. It's better he rot in jail for the rest of his life and he's never, ever paroled. Okay, Islanders, I'll leave that one there. Yet another case that was so difficult to research. Just unbelievable what some people can do, and Peter Barnes, what she must go through even to this day. So before I go, a big shout out to all my patrons. Thank you for your support. It does keep the lights on as generally we're a commercial-free podcast. Special thanks to my new Patron, Blasphemous JP. If you'd like to help out, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland or if you want to buy me a beer, you can shout me out on paypal.me forward slash Island. And a big shout-out to Greg Rose, who did exactly that. Thanks, Greg. Links to merch, social media, and my YouTube channel is on my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can also email me. There was a question on Facebook the other day about links, so yeah, every episode I post the links under the post in Facebook, or they're in the description of my YouTube channel. Now, YouTube Season 2 will start up soon, and I'll try to start back weekly on the audio podcast as well as soon as I can get just that little bit more time. Now, I have a promo this week for a podcast I mentioned the other week. That is Mike Brown from the Dark Poutine Podcast all the way from Canada. Now, it's a podcast about notorious Canadian crimes, dark history, and other creepy topics. So, listen to the promo at the end of the show. So, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't. Forget to delete your browser history. Good night, and How's it going, eh? I'm Mike Brown, host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Every week we serve up a new helping of Dark Poutine, which focuses on true crime and dark history from north of the 49th parallel, with the Ottaway game covering cases from around the globe. So put on your toque, grab yourself a Double Double and a Nanaimo bar, and join me and a co-host every Monday for a new episode of Dark Poutine, part of the Curious Cast Network with Chorus Entertainment. You can easily find us on any podcatcher, including iTunes and Spotify. Just search for Dark Poutine and hit subscribe.